I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognize their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Welcome to This Song Is Yours, a music podcast where we talk to a new guest each week, talk about their life and creative endeavours, and talk to them about some of the music they love. This show works by chatting to our guests about music, but also getting them to make you a playlist. You can find the link to our playlist in the show notes for today's episode. I'm your host, Simon Fink, and welcome to episode three. Our guest today is Alice Fraser. When Alice isn't touring the country with Laneway Festival, she's globetrotting with bands like Tame Impala and King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. In our conversation today, we talk about how throwing house parties with bands led to touring with one of the world's biggest rock bands. We also discuss late night parties in New Orleans and the one act that Alice always managed to catch on Laneway. Here we go. Our guest today has been working behind the scenes in the music industry for over the last 10 years. She's toured with St. Jerome's Laneway Festival since 2015 and has also shared the road with acts like Kendrick Lamar, Pink and FKA Twigs. She's the tour manager for King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and she also works with a little band called Tame Impala as their global production coordinator. She absolutely loves live music and is the queen of playlists. Please welcome to This Song Is Yours, Alice Fraser. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now, Alice, before we get into what you do, um, I would love to know about your connection to live music. What is it that you love about uh, seeing live music and just live music in general? Well, look, I think uh, I actually just grew up in a family where live music was kind of not an option. (laughs) So I grew up where, you know, I was uh, in my early teens and my parents used to write me notes to go to the big day out. We went to, uh, we went to Falls Festival as a family in Lawn when quite literally my parents were the oldest people to go to Lawn Falls. Like it was amazing. And they used to take me and my brother when we were underage, we went to all the WOMADs. And I just think our whole social circle and you know, the entire social circle of how my family grew up and then how I sort of developed a love of music along with, you know, in my early years with a really close connection to what it meant over sport and because I was really heavily involved in athletics and surf life saving. So I sort of coupled it with this social aspect of what my family delivered and then I had this real connection where it was like music was a pump up for me before races and it was just this amazing connection that like actually going to see live music was what we did as kids like you know from as long as I can remember from you know late primary school through to now music and going to music festivals going to shows not only is it like I actually get to see my favourite bands live because music just absorbs every part of my being. But it's also, you know, it's also how I've actually met so many of my most favourite people in the world who are lifelong friends. Now, whether that's in like a professional sense or just as, you know, I've met them at shows and we've bonded and we've become friends ever since. It's actually, yeah, the connections are far and wide. So for me, live music is kind of like I haven't known anything different. Now, it has been a very quiet year for live music, and I imagine there are a lot of people missing it in their life. Now, this might be a redundant question due to the the multitude of answers you could have, but what's the one thing you look forward to when live music comes back? I think actually, well, just sort of more broadly, seeing the industry full-blown kickstart again. I think, you know, we're in this really, uh, we're in this really difficult holding pattern right now where all the workers are potentially, you know, finding alternate jobs, moving into different industries, having to make really dramatic life decisions as, you know, as I guess the reflection on what they are able to get from, you know, government support or whatever, what companies are financially able to do over the course of particularly the next six months. And so I think for me, I'm actually, I just am longing to kickstart 
the industry safely again, you know, and it's not, you know, I don't think it's something that can be rushed. There needs to be sort of a unified approach as to how we do this because obviously, you know, I guess we're very, very fortunate in Australia and to a certain degree in New Zealand as well to exist in the countries that we do where our cases are <laughs> incredibly low. But travelling to some other areas right now, um, you know, across the Europe, the UK, America, it's actually just not safe. So, you know, I guess we can't we can't sort of rush the process as to what that's going to be because no one actually knows yet. I, I feel like, I, you know, it's really important to reiterate that I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen yet. Um, but I just, you know, I really want, I want the bands to start you know, working and touring again. I want them to start to have that live stream income. I want all the affiliate industries and the people who are employed by it to have work again and to have something to sort of look forward to because, you know, I think when when we don't know what the future holds from an industry perspective where we're so used to planning things, I think that alone is actually a really difficult construct to sort of deal with on the daily. So, you know, overall, I just want, I want the economic impacts of what it means, you know, to run shows and what that means for small venues, large venues, stadiums and, and whatever else. But I really do want to just see bands performing live again because I feel that for so many, particularly of the ones that I work with, performing live is actually, you know, a huge part of who they are and what their band represents and kind of what they're known for. So for as much as people are pivoting to online and doing online performances and a whole variety of you know, different uh, fan experiences through through the online mediums. It's just not the same. Yeah, of course. You yourself had quite a year planned um, with everything that's happened this year. And as you mentioned, Australia, we are in a very lucky situation, whereas it's a lot more difficult to kind of travel to, to Europe, to the US. How has the year um, and what's happened impacted you and your plans? Oh, I mean, look... I can only speak for, um, you know, for, for me personally in this aspect, but like, you know, I'm 32. I really had gone, okay, at the beginning of this year, I went, right, I'll do Laneway Festival and then I'm going to move to Las, Las Vegas. I'm going to be, I'm going to move there with Tame Impala. We're going to build and develop a show. We're going to tour it for the next two years and then co-align that with um, when, when I'm not in tour with Tame, I'm subbing in and doing King Gizzard and it was a really nice flow. So I had essentially gone, right, I at the beginning of this year, I knew what my next two years was going to look like and, you know, what that meant for me financially, you know, career goal-wise, um, you know, reaching all these really massive milestones that I had only dreamt of when I first started in music sort of a decade ago and suddenly they were all becoming a reality. So, you know, to one day be performing uh, to thousands and thousands of people at the forum in LA to quite literally the next day sending everyone home and at least trying to get everyone home as quickly as possible Um you know, it was a really brutal reality that I don't think really sunk in until sort of a month or so after we'd landed back home because, you know, I guess we, you know, this my personal psyche went, wow, all right, I'm in LA. I thought I was going to be touring for the next two years. There's this, there's this coronavirus thing that, you know, there's so much fanfare about it. It was quite an unknown but drastic thing and concept that was starting to affect everything globally and everything was going into shutdown. And so it was like, wow, okay, well, my first priority is to get home and get home to loved ones. And obviously what that meant for the crew and the bands that I was with at the time, but at the, you know, couple that with, I just need to sleep because it took days to get people home <laughs> because that's also like, you know, in the U S you have to understand that that was when Trump had started to ban all the inbound flights from Europe. And when a bunch of your crew are from Europe, there were actually no flights or, you know, there were drastically reduced flights um, <laughs> trying to get everyone home. So, and it just meant that people's itineraries were changing consistently. So, full shout outs um, to our travel agents who, you know, worked very closely with, um, you know, upper management to sort of get everyone home safely and as quickly as possible. Um, 
So yeah, you kind of go through this thing where you're so tired, you're sitting on a <laughs> you're sitting on a plane, you're going, "Well, I've got a mask on, hand sanitizer. There's this thing called coronavirus. No one really knows what it's doing. We just have to get home to Australia. We're beating that. We've got home, I think, the day before or very close to when it was mandatory ISO, but they did strongly advise that you had to remain in ISO for two weeks. So we were. I was lucky enough that I could actually, you know, do a connecting flight and come home to Adelaide at that time um, and ISO here for a couple of weeks. And then sort of it dawns on you that you're, you know, you're home for two weeks, you're catching up on sleep and then you're kind of like, whoa, this thing is not going away. In actual fact, it's getting bigger. The biggest economies in the world are shutting down <laughs> and there's this virus that, you know, is novel in the sense that no one really knows. We know kind of physiologically what it's doing, but long-term you know, that we don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. So it very, very, very quickly dawned that mm, we're actually not going to have work for quite a long time. And so, yeah, I think the the reality really hit sort of a month after I got home, um, sort of in, in April of, of like, okay, well, everything that I had worked for for the last 10 years has just come crashing down. And, you know, yes, that's just my personal experience experience and what I was sort of uh, working through at the time. But it's a it's a pretty hard reality to come to terms with, um, you know, especially when there's just so un- so many unknowns in the future. Like I sort of mentioned before, where I exist in a world where I'm so used to planning and so used to being in control of what's happening and, you know, the, and the outlook and strategically sort of working towards things in a personal life, in a professional life, in a psychological life, like in all aspects of my being. And suddenly it was like, oh my goodness, Alice, you can't control any of this. And you know, and you've actually just got to stop and breathe. So, you know, after sort of working through those emotions and those pretty hard realities and hard home truths, it was kind of like, okay, well, what can I do here? And throughout this time, I can't work, which, you know, is really sucky, but I'm very lucky that I can get JobKeeper. And I also, you know, what are the things that I can control? And that's sort of looking after my body, my mind, my health. So, you know, I guess I just called it my long service leave. <laughs> so after a decade of being <laughs> running my own ship, I just went, right, well, Alice, now's better, what better time to do this? You know, spend time with loved ones, spend time with friends, nestle it at home, um, you know, and be super healthy, you know, basically didn't drink for months and months and, you know, and just really focused on having a healthy body in mind, which, you know, I guess sounds a little bit cliche and, <laughs> um, you know, it's not meant to, but I just think I had just run off also such a massive 2019 where, yeah, I was home basically for less than a month in a whole year. Um, yeah, subbing in and out of home and swapping suitcases was basically all I did. So, Finally, um, yeah, you know, I just went, okay, well, my body's stopping now. May as well just, you know, look after it and just get ready. So when the time comes that everything's going to kick start again, I'm absolutely raring to go and I'm going to be mentally fit. I'm going to be super, you know, mentally fit, healthy and just ready to go. With talking about going back to work, your role or roles specifically, uh, for those people who don't know, are you able to explain, I guess, the role of production coordinator and tour manager? Sure. So, I mean, in a in a touring world, basically, we're sort of, as a tour manager for King Giz, um, shout outs to Sam, who I actually co-tour manage with, with King Giz, which is a really beautiful thing. Like we have a really small unit who looks after that band, really dynamic. We work across a whole range of roles in, in the band, but the tour manager is essentially, you know, for lack of a better word, the boss. So when it comes to the tour, tour hierarchy and signing off on financials, doing the overall tour direction, putting together the crew, working, you know, looking after the band, doing all the itineraries, the day schedules, looking after press, um, routing, immigration, uh, and kind of just overseeing the actual rollout of the tour. That's what the tour manager does. So the buck sort of falls with them, so to speak. Um, you know, in, and I guess I should say that every tour setup is slightly different. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear, uh, you know, you'll hear titles like 
tour director <laughs> um, being thrown around and sort of they can also sit in another tier above that sort of oversee the tour manager and the production manager um, and then they have, you know, people assisting them in each of their respective roles. So, yeah, the tour manager in King is effectively means that I work incredibly closely with the band to ensure that they're travelling safely, they're doing the shows on time, we're liaising with the venues, doing all the routing, um, the buses, the festivals, doing all the advancing, which means sort of all the comms leading up to a show. So, uh, yeah, and kind of that's it. I guess the difference with a production coordinator in the sense of TAME is that I work directly underneath the tour director who's also the production manager and the tour manager. So I'm sort of um, an, a, an assistant, so to speak, um, and I work across both the A party and the crew. So I can do anything from, you know, managing travel um, and assisting with all the logistics on ground, you know, looking after catering, taking part in certain parts of the advance. So, you know, guest lists, any VIP events. If we've got management or any reps touring on the road with us, you know, I'm sort of their main point person. Um, even, you know, on the ground, I do practical things like walk around at the beginning of the day before anyone else has arrived with the tour manager and put venue signage up <laughs> because, you know, as many people joke, the first thing that people ask when they get there is they're like, where's backstage? Where's the toilet? <laughs> and it's like, ah, there's a sign. It's telling you this way. <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess um, I was, I was laughing the other day because I just think when we first get up in the morning and to be honest, like on some stadium shows, the setups are, can occasionally be 24 hours. So we're starting at 1am. Um, so occasionally we're working for like almost 26 hours, sort of setting up a show, delivering a show, um, packing it down, getting it in the trucks and moving on to the next one. So we're working some pretty extensive days and by days it is plural <laughs> when we're reaching those sort of, sort of hour limits. Um, you know, we do ha try and give strategic rests in, in between but once you sort of get to some of the really high-end scales of things you're working really full-on so um yeah the production coordinator sort of assists with um any anything that the tool manager and the production manager sort of require on the road but mostly I'll be designated certain tasks um that just sort of assist them uh, on a day-to-day -day basis to sort of alleviate some of the pressures that happen on those really, really big shows. Awesome. With your permission, Alice, I would like to go back a little bit in time. Of course. When you first started getting involved in the music industry side of things and started booking bands at your own house parties, now I think I actually might have gone to a, a few of those, possibly Glenelg. Is, is that the house? Yeah, actually, Seacliff was the real rockin' one. That's the um, one I'm thinking of. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, I I giggle because it's actually that show itself, which was, funnily enough, a shit shirt party, was completely by accident. So at the time I was like being a pretty poor uni student, <laughs> it, poor in the sense of uh, I just really wanted to see the world. So had studied super hard at school and then uh, – you know, once I left school, I very quickly realised that I just actually wanted to experience the world and experience and learn from the people that exist within it rather than go it straight into textbooks again. So I was doing journalism, but kind of I was doing it part-time and stump, yeah, basically I was living in this epic house with a bunch of boys and we were like, should we just throw a party? And I was like, party with bands? Sick. <laughs> Let's do a shit show party. And so then, you know, I was really heavily involved in the surf club, you know, got a stage from them, put it in the backyard with the PA and these bands just came and played. And it was so fun. There were people jumping off the roof. There was like beer cans on the rotating fans and turning them on in the house. It was an absolute disaster, <laughs> but it was a really fun disaster. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I mean, looking back, it was really funny because shortly after that, um, quite literally was when I, you know, sort of stumbled across a music conference in Adelaide and, uh, you know, stumbled across the music conference, sat down and realised that uh, – you could actually learn about the music industry and the music business. And that very swiftly that summer, I sort of had uh, deferred from uni. I'd bought a tour van. 
I'd enrolled in music business night school. I was doing an online course with Berkeley College of Music and it just sort of snowballed from there. So I just thought, but I guess sort of the one takeaway that I had, well, there were a couple actually. One was that in all my learnings, it was, you have to start local. Like local is where you can really refine your craft. And yeah, so kind of starting local, but always thinking global. And so with that in mind, I'm pretty sure that the keynote speaker at Fuse Conference back in the day, actually, I totally have ripped it from them because I'm pretty sure that they, they said something and it's stuck with me ever since. And funnily enough, I'm a real geek. I love writing things down. Like I just I mean, I also love technology, don't get me wrong, but I really love the feeling of a notebook. And uh, I was madly writing in this notebook that I've actually still got. And that was one of the first things at the top page (laughs) and it's remained with me ever since. And so I just sort of went, okay, the music industry seems really big. I didn't know that there was a live industry that we could explore. Why don't I go and research it. So that's where the tool van sort of came in. Um, I was also sort of a duty manager at the surf club. So I could couple my time with starting to book shows at a surf club where we did early days of like Kim Churchill, even Sticky Fingers and a few others did their like first Adelaide shows there. And I, you know, these bands have gone on to some, you know, really good levels of success. And then Uh, I traveled around Australia for sort of 18 months and I just engrossed myself in volunteering, going to conferences, speaking to artists, seeing as many shows as possible. If I was going somewhere where a band was going on tour or had a festival slot or something, I'd say, hey, hire me in my van, I'll drive you. And so I guess by natural virtue, I'd started the tour management process then without even realizing it. Cause I was still so green. Like I didn't, I didn't really know what these defined roles were and that they were even possible and how they actually worked. So it was a very DIY construct where I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really uh, aligned with any particular style of music. It was very, very diverse. And I think that's sort of, you know, that speaks true to what my music taste is anyway, because I, I definitely don't have a favorite genre or anything or, or, you know, or really even a favorite band. It's the impossible question for me, as I'm sure for many others, but it really is. So I, um, you know, but I, I, people began to hire me in my van and I was really lucky. I had several local bands that also, you know, asked me to help out and, and, in a booking or a management capacity just in certain areas. And I think, you know, why, why not? Like I look back and it's just like every little piece of my journey throughout, particularly those formative times, sort of eight and a half years ago, they actually just completely shaped my understanding as to what it's like to work in the music industry. And um, yeah, but I guess this whole think global thing had always been the seed that was planted in my mind. And so doing the Berkeley College of Music online music business course at the same time as studying at the South Australian music school in the evenings, it was just like, wow, this is so cool. There is so much out there. The epicenters of where the music industry exists, I mean, creatively, Australia, like Adelaide is incredible and the support that you can get as a young entrepreneur here is amazing. But the cold hard fact is that we don't actually have many global companies that exist here or have an office here. So, you know, I very quickly realized that it was like, all right, I can't, I can operate here and maybe I can start some things. But in retrospect, I really have to go overseas. I have to go into the epicenters of where these music business hubs are, see how fast paced they are to work within, experience them as a fan, like see what drives them, see what the different styles of venues are, see a city that's seven nights a week, you know, like your London's or your LA's or your New York's and actually just feed that into, you know, not only my soul, (laughs) but into my sort of uh, I guess my career outlook and my career planning. Cause you know, I guess much like an artist with how they might continually write, you know, write new music and record new music and write albums or, you know, do collaborations or, you know, artistically start a different style. For me as a music industry person, my, the thought process is kind of exactly the same. You know, I'm also a, a career person who has a creative outlet where I just happen to work on the business side of music, but there's nothing that's stopping me from, you know, looking at those indicators and really, uh, you know, pulling them on the inside and going, all right, well, if I treat my 
myself as as my business, which I guess as a sole trader I I am, then, you know, the more experience that I have, uh, the better. And I guess like as I started to throw myself into more and more international experiences, like I just, I was beaming. Like I just, I actually just get so pumped going to a new city, a new place, a new venue, because I just, you know, I take it all in. I'm very much a, um, you know, a senses person. So, you know, actually going into a venue, you know, even though I might be working on a tour, but if it's a new space and I'm walking into somewhere new, all those feelings that I feel when I'm a music fan about to see my favourite band is still exactly the same. So, you know, perhaps sometimes that's not perceived as professional, <laughs> but in a way I don't really care because it's who I am. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's been a really like you know, it's been a really cool journey that those early days actually established much of the thinking in my mind about going global. And, you know, as an operator who, of course, you know, probably long-term I'll live here in Australia. I'm not sure where, but probably somewhere in Australia will be my home base. But, you know, I having the overseas experience um, on many levels, both recently and then, you know, I guess back at the end of 2000. 15 and 16 when I went to London it was like those actually fed directly into sort of where I want to go and I almost call them like my tipping point of just going wow this was the first time that I discovered a live touring industry um not just music industry and thinking that I could work in publicity or agency or whatever it was like holy crap I can actually go on the road with bands and uh <laughs> yeah and then you know I was like so almost famous is kind of a thing <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I just thought that that was like a rubbish soap opera. (laughs) And then I I was like, oh, there are actually roles on the road that I could do. And, uh, yeah, very quickly fast-tracked to being like, this is where I want to be and what I want to do. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I did want to ask about that, uh, that. I guess that first step when you moved, you've gone from Adelaide and it's a, uh, it's a much smaller scene. And then you've gone from there to London and worked at uh, communion, communion yeah. music. Yeah. What was that? What was that shift like? Oh, well, I guess it was funny because, um, you know, as I, yeah, as I mentioned before, when I did the 18 months around Australia, learning about the industry, doing as much as I possibly could across a broad range of, experiences, I sort of landed back in Adelaide and went, right, there's a real niche market for uh, small shows. I'm going to use cafes because all of my best friends and people that I'd met were starting these really cool cafes all around Adelaide. Let's do shows on a Thursday night where, because Adelaide at the time was really a Friday, Saturday, Sunday place. And then, yeah, just created this format of show where it was completely unplugged Bands performed five songs, four originals, one cover, and it just developed into this really incredible movement of artists where bands like, and artists like Julia Jacqueline and Marlon Williams played their first shows in Adelaide at them. And, you know, you look at what they've gone on to and I just sort of have to pinch myself sometimes (laughs) because not only did they take a chance on me as someone who's just like, you know, a, a beginner promoter, but it was also a format of show which wouldn't suit 
everyone and they really gave it a shot. And for the artists who, you know, local and touring who actually came to perform, I forever am indebted to them because what it ended up doing was opening up, you know, as I, of course, started to listen to music online and things, I discovered, um, yeah, this one presenter called Maz who was the lead promoter at Communion and I discovered that he was running a radio show I checked in and listened to it online every week and I was like, man, this guy plays sick music. So again, the music music fan in me (laughs) was like, I like this guy. And then I just did a bit of research and realized that he also had his other arm at communion. And, you know, lo and behold, I looked at the format of shows that they were doing and they just released a film, Austin to Boston, which followed, you know, a whole bunch of really cool bands like the Staves, um, you know, the Staves and Ben Howard and a bunch of them jumped in combis and they, you know, travelled around America and did smaller shows. Um, But it was just, it was very wholesome. People were having an incredible time. The music was unbelievable. So I guess the credibility was, um, the artistic credibility was incredibly high. And I just went, you know what, like those core values are kind of what I'm trying to achieve here in Adelaide. I know it's a completely different scale in some respect, but I'm going to write to Maz. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to tell him that I like what he's doing <laughs> and thank him for introducing me to artists like Ben Howard. So I went, well, I, I just wrote to him completely cold. I think I've got the emails still. And uh, yeah, and it was just like, hey, Maz, thank you so much for introducing me to all these artists that I love. These are the shows that I run in Adelaide. I'm not sure if you've ever even been to Adelaide, but it is in Australia. (laughs) These are some Australian artists that I really like or artists that have played at my shows. And I think that you might really enjoy listening to, Um, you know, if you're ever up for a conversation or something to that effect, like, you know, let's stay in touch. Um, Just continue what you're doing. Thanks. And then, basically overnight (laughs) he had got back to me and lo and behold I think one Skype later because it was still Skype back then hilarious um (laughs) yeah he he said to me he was like you know what come over do an intern role so it just sort of you know from a cold email suddenly this dream of going whoa I can actually go to London. I've never even travelled to London, but also I can get the visa where I'm under 30 so I can be there for two years. It was relatively affordable. I'd been, like, working my butt off, working several hospitality jobs, so I kind of had savings and I was so lucky that the hospo jobs, you know, invested in me and allowed me the flexibility to go off on the weekends and do the weekend tours in my van with vinyl floor. And so, uh, I just went, right, let's, uh, let's do this. And very gratefully, I was able to apply for a skills and development grant through at the time, what was Arts SA? And yeah, they funded sort of a relocation to London and I was able to go there. And I basically worked like almost seven, pretty well, seven nights a week and was so, I, I did, you know, door shifts at nightclubs. I was working as a production runner and there was this real sentimental thing, you know, I think going back on something that you said earlier this year, like, sorry, earlier in this conversation, like this year has been so reflective. Like it's just in a really beautiful way we move, I feel like my life has moved so fast and so in turbo mode that I actually for the first time ever in the last six months have sat back, I've looked through my 75,000 photos on my iPhone and gone, (laughs) whoa, this is so, uh, like these moments and these periods of time are just so cool and they just like they fill my tummy with like butterflies almost so when I went and worked at communion one of the moments where I really did full-blown pinch myself was not only did I get to do Ben Howard did three sold-out nights at Ali Pally in London and so then the end of 2019 so I was there as a you know intern assist to the promoter rep so I was kind of doing odd jobs here and there um you know anything that they needed I was basically an on the ground assist it was like by far the largest headline shows that I had ever personally worked on so you know you can get around 11 and a half thousand people there but for a girl coming from Adelaide who'd run shows for 50 capacity in cafes on a Thursday night in Adelaide it was a dramatic change and so um, you know but a very very welcomed uh one and I was like wow this is so cool and yeah ended up going and 
working these shows and then in 2019 we went back and King Giz had sold out Ali Pally and there were like backstage there were photos of the Ben Howard shows that I worked on and to go whoa over the last like in five years I was able to kind of build from being an intern assist to running the shows there as like a tour manager and it was a real sort of like I don't know, it was a real moment for me that you don't ever want to think, you know, you don't ever want to come across as egotistical or, you know, arrogant or whatever. But I feel like sometimes in in the music industry side of things, it's actually, um, you know, for the perceived excitement that you get by working with artists who are doing really well and what those moments, whether it's like a venue that you've always wanted to perform at or those little milestones that you've just gone, whoa, like I've come this far in five years and I feel like I'm only just hitting my straps and I've got so much more to learn and so much more to do in, in the music sphere. I was like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be like it was just completely reaffirming you know a couple of selfies to the family group in front of the Ben Howard (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) I was like hey mum grandma (laughs) I work in the music industry and they still write back and they're like we're still not sure what you do but congratulations (laughs) (laughs) Um, they were like we're assuming this is great (laughs) um but I think you know I think it's really cool to celebrate those moments no matter what scale it is but it's like everyone has dreams or you'd at least hope that you know whether or not it's dreams or whether or not it's like strategic decisions that you make to get to down the path or whether they're just completely like um you know by accident I guess uh it was a real moment to kind of go wow you know I'm I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason just before you mentioned with the time that you've had to reflect and, and going through your, your phone and seeing the 7,000 something photos of, of, uh, of the years gone by, are there certain tour memories that I guess stick out? Cause from what you've said, it is almost like almost famous that you're on the road with these bands. Are there any tour stories that kind of stick out to you that are like, I can't believe I, I did this or I know I believe that there's one with Skrillex and Jamison and private planes. <laughs> Well, I mean, look, I'm so, I guess, you know, I have worked on a really large variety of, you know, with a large variety of musicians across a whole different scope of genre. And I actually think, you know, it's actually a decision that I make not only because I love all the bands that I work with in a musical sense. So, you know, it's a it's really cool because I actually, you know, I have this goal that I'm not going to work with shit people. Like I just think life's too short. And unfortunately there are some in the industry. And of course, being a female tour member to a, you know, uh, yeah, female member in touring groups and touring parties, it, we're still a complete minority, right? So the reality of it is, is that I want to surround myself with people who, you know, treat me as one of their own, you know, have up, most respect for people from the minority groups and um you know I'm so lucky that I do like I just um it's so rad and so I just think learning from all the different bands and the different artists that I've worked with is just I giggle and I'd love to say that I you know have five really good memories (laughs) but one the Skrillex one that you mentioned is uh is pretty funny because it was kind of you know, Skrillex is EDM, very grateful that I kind of got linked in through someone that I'd done runner work with um, who's based out of Melbourne. They, you know, had a family member who was working on the tour and they were looking for someone and it was when they were, Skrillex was headlining Listen Out and, and the Listen In festivals around Australia and New Zealand. And it was just unbelievably fun. Like that guy, Sonny's work ethic is like nothing I have ever seen before. Like I actually don't think I ever saw him without his laptop and headphones. And for me it was, you know, this was 2018 and that was the 2018-2019 for me are probably the biggest two years that I've had ever. And it was just like to kind of see the hype and the energy around him and, you know, that he has decks in his, you know, decks everywhere you go. So decks in dressing rooms, decks in hotel rooms, laptop, laptop on, you know, your lap when you're in transit. Like it's just, it's so cool. And it was just, you know, and it was a really different realm for me because I'd grown up 
and had been really strongly working for musician, like, you know, bands with instruments on the road as opposed to, you know, the EDM where it's much as about the crew and, you know, the live show production and technical-wise that it was like, whoa, this is unbelievable. And so at the end of the tour, it was so fun. I just had was so grateful that the tour party who'd worked with Skrillex for a long time, they were just so kind and we were like, right, we're in Adelaide, amazingly, it's the last night of the show, let's have let's have fun. So we just went, um, Sunny ended up doing a really late announce after show party at Rocket. And of course, Rocket's like, Rocket Bar in Adelaide's like 300 cap. I was like, we all have to go. Like, this is going to be the finest night ever. And so it was kind of like, everyone's off. Like, everyone's off. We're all having some drinks. I'm famous for a double Jamison on the rocks, which is disgusting. Like, I actually just need to get a cool no, drink. There's nothing wrong with that, but... <laughs> It's like, Alice, be more female. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, you could have maybe gone for a pina colada, you know? Um, but double Jamison on the rocks, here we go. So, um, and I know that I was holding two of them, which is just pretty funny. And it was around 2 a.m. in the morning at Rocker Bar. We were dancing to Sunny's set. Sunny was traveling, um, you know, on a private jet and he just wanted to keep playing music and I was like well as long as we get you to Melbourne before the international flights start to come in over Melbourne and we can't get the airspace so I was on the floor of Rocket Bar at around 2 2 30 in the morning holding two double Jamisons on the rocks with my Bluetooth headset in speaking to the pilot of the plane pushing back the departure of the flight and I was like is this real life? <laughs> is this really a job? <laughs> and uh, yeah, and lo and behold, you know, I'm very grateful to say that it is. I can't not mention that um, in 2019, I'd started the year. So my goal, I've always loved New Orleans music. Like it's been my favorite forever and ever. And I had been planning for 10 years, a trip to New Orleans. So I, and to also go to Jazz Fest, which I just thought I'm pretty sure the outside of like going to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, Jazz Fest is going to be the greatest time in the world. So a few things had started to fall into place where I did have conversations and sort of thought that Tame and Kinkies were going to have a couple of really big years of touring. I had actually never, prior to me going on tour with them, I'd actually never been to the United States. So there was a real thought process for me that it's like, okay, if I'm going to be touring these bands to the United States, specifically with King Giz in mind, because they were the first band, I was like, I have, like, I have to have an understanding as to how America rolls, like, and how, uh, you know, the differences that exist, because it is a vastly different way of operation um, compared to Australia, uh, just due to the virtues of it just being a different country and different systems and things like that. So I started to build this concept that I was like, right, well, all of these great festivals are actually starting to pop up across America, including the new Pharrell Williams one, um, Something in the Water, where he and Timberland basically built this festival at Virginia Beach. So I just, a few things had started to align that were all in the festival season in America. And I'd been thinking very strongly about just taking myself to America and going to as many venues that we were going to perform at so I could see them on ground because, you know, we were performing in venues up to 10,000 people. So, you know, when you're talking American dollars, the financial, you know, we're talking decent amounts of dollars and tech, you know, tech and production that is going into this. And if I don't, if I have no knowledge of how America rolls, like that's actually just not great on my end. So I ended up being very fortunate and I applied and got the a fellowship through again, the South Australian government. Um, and the fellowship actually funded me to go and do a research and investigative project on uh, festivals and venues across America and Mexico. So I actually spent like three months in a America, where I was just traveling around and going to as many music festivals and music venues as possible. And, you know, it was actually, you know, I started my trip at Coachella <laughs> and it was pretty much uphill from there. <laughs> um, like I, yeah, and I was so grateful. So I was able to jump on 
tour and I did like the North American run with John Hopkins. So, and it was incredible because all the venues that he was performing at were venues that I was going back to. So it was just this amazing thing that I was witnessing how an American tour was actually operating in real life by jumping on and just viewing it. But then I was going to the venues, I was being a face, I was meeting the people and just, you know, it was so incredible. And so in the end, I sort of started Coachella. Then I went to Shaky Knees Festival. Um, I did Jazz Fest. I ended up doing all these secret shows at Jazz Fest at like th- two and three o'clock in the morning. Kamazi watching the secret show there. Oh. Oh, incredible. <laughs> It was just like, I. it's three o'clock in New Orleans. And the funniest part of it is, is that, you know, the festival itself finishes at 7 p.m. because they want the city of New Orleans to come alive. So, you know, the festival finishes at 7 and then you've got the whole night to go to, you know, Tipitina Bar <laughs> and Preservation Jazz Hall and all these places that are just like, oh, my goodness, or, you know, and go and follow Trombone Shorty basically wherever he's playing. It was so fun and uh yeah but I guess you know going to these festivals seeing how they operate meeting all these people and then sort of going and I spent sort of decent chunks of time in New York and LA and then also um yeah we did a trip to Mexico as well and it just you know it actually for me was unbelievable like actually researching somewhere where you're about to go on tour before you actually take everyone with you where you are in charge. I think that was one of the best and, you know, and boldest decisions I've ever, <laughs> I've ever made. I mean, I, I was on, yeah, we were joking that it's like, it was quite literally Alice Fraser's spring break. So <laughs> it's like, <laughs> which was uh, pretty fun. <laughs> now, Alice, are you happy to move on to your mix? Yeah, we can move on to the mix. earlier you mentioned john hopkins who does make an appearance here with the track luminous beings from the from the brilliant record singularity now john has multiple records that you could have picked any track from what was it that stood out about luminous beings luminous beings do you know it was actually john played laneway and it was kind of funny because on laneway festival the only time I get to run out and see any bands really in my in my job is right at the end of the night and so he was sort of a festival closer and it was really funny because it was just happened to be the (laughs) on the run of six shows the song that I saw every time that I went out was Luma's Big so not only is it synonymous with like me just loving everything that Laneway has meant for me and the opportunities it has given, including, you know, meeting the likes of King Gizzard and Tame Impala primarily through um, them performing at Laneway, but also the friendship with John and all of his tour crew, which has just been, you know, something that I'll cherish forever. I mean, for them to give me the opportunity to go to America, to go to Coachella, live with them out at Joshua Tree, experience, uh, you know, experience all of these amazing things across America, including sort of my first time. And then amazingly, at the end of 2019, when the King Giz European tour wrapped, I actually went back to London and was able to go uh, and see all of that team again with John doing print works in London and then we did the warehouse project in Manchester which is like a it's almost like an indoor rave for almost 10,000 people and that was with you know Peggy Goo and Skrillex and it was the one that was curated by Skrillex and Fortet so it was this amazing sort of moment of going I just love luminous beings for everything it just takes me to all of these times where they were they are all really happy memories for me and you know, to be able to sort of go, I was actually having a chat with a couple of crew the other night and yeah, Rosie and I were discussing, like, we were just saying, how lucky are we to have had the end of 2019 that we did? Because 2019, we, you know, we traveled around the world. We were able to see each other several times throughout the year in all different places all over the world and go and have these live show experiences that were just so positive that it's like, you know what? That's a good memory for me. So that's where Luminous Beings comes. And it just, you know, I've, I've discovered that when I was looking at this playlist, I really like longer songs. So I'm not really the stickler for three minute songs, am I? <laughs> um, I, I was going to comment on the playlist only because it is, um, 
maybe the most eclectic that we've had so far, but even then, seeing people's playlists before, it's very eclectic. You've got Paul Simon, Erica Bardus, and Beyonce. What, what To you, what does make a good playlist? Like what's at the core of a good mixtape or a good playlist? Well, I mean, I actually love it because I don't think that there are any rules. I think if you're going to make a playlist, I think if you're going to make a playlist, it's intrinsically a representation of who you are right at this time or perhaps planning for something. So if you make a playlist with something in mind, it's, you know, I actually love making them and it's only, you know, it's only recently that I've diverted I'm really usually quite genre specific in my playlist, but recently I've started to do like daytime mixes, nighttime mixes and go into like an Alice's weekly mixtape where I just add in a few songs that I've come across. Now they might be current. They might not be, you know, you might, one minute you might be listening to dance hall, the next minute hardcore techno. <laughs> and I apologize if that's really not <laughs> what you want. But, um, but also like, you know, even how I just mentioned, when I listen to songs and they take me back to some some place or an interaction or a person uh, that is really, you know, that represents a, a moment in time, I just think that's what makes a good playlist for me. Yeah, that's fair. That's very, very fair. Um, one song that you included on the playlist is, uh, I think, a song that I would maybe include in my own playlist if I was to be a guest, um, maybe one day, um, is LCD Sound System, All My Friends, which I feel like a lot of people have uh, memories kind of intrinsically linked with this song. For you, what, I guess, what does this song mean or what does this song have connected? What memory do you have connection to this song? Well, it's actually, uh, dare I say, um, and I'm pretty sure he'll kill me for this, but it's like, so I'm at my... We can, we can bleep it out if, if that if that needs to happen. Sorry. <laughs> it's not a dirty story. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, me and my partner met at a wedding in New Zealand and it was one of the final songs that he played at the end of the night and it was the wedding of one of my bestest friends. And I just remember dancing. We were at Wanaka. And we were in this barn house and the dance floor was the most extremely unbelievable dance floor that I have ever seen. Like it actually kicks any nightclub, any festival's dance floors, but like people were moving. And was, I just look around and just every person was just either arm in arm, smiling, hands up in the air. And it, just for me, I was like, these are all of my friends. Like this is actually so, um, I was like, this is just a real moment of this song just meaning the bottom line of friendship, like, and how cool that now there's the linkage that, you know, I have met my partner and the song that was like at the time is that one. So, and for me, I just think LCD Sound System are one of the best bands that you can see live. So, you know, I've really, and they just continually produce incredible records. So I kind of can't not include them. I think that's very smart. LCD Sound System is usually a pretty good way to to end the night. Alice, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Once again, that's our show. A massive thank you to Alice Fraser for her time this week. You can hopefully catch her on the road next year with Damon Parler, which you can currently be seen in the King Gizzard documentary, Chunky Shrapnel. We've put a link to the doco and to Alice's playlist in the show notes. If you like this show, please subscribe wherever you get your pods and stay up to date when new episodes are released. We release new shows each Thursday morning with guest playlists streaming on Spotify at the same time. Once you've finished listening to this episode, head over to Alice's playlist to listen to some of her picks, including Dark Punk, Paul Simon and Rosalia. You can follow the playlist profile on Spotify and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.